I love reading. I love books. I love the study of literature. I've spent most of my life studying literature. And so I am living the dream. I get to stand in front of a group of people who have to listen to me. They have (laughs) to be there. And I get to wave my arms and dance around the room and talk about something that I love more than anything else in the world. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a fire truck driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? My name is Blake Fletcher, and this is the Half Hour Intern Podcast, where we explore the interesting paths people take in life. In today's episode, I speak with Kara McCabe, who is a high school English teacher. So one of the things that we will talk about is what exactly made Kara want to become an English teacher. For a lot of us, um, there might have been classes in high school that we really latched onto. I don't know that I've ever met anyone who was like, oh, English class. Like, I can't wait. I, uh, I definitely know people who like to read, and I like to read for that matter, but not a lot of people think that English is like the most sexy, awesome thing in the world, but Kara does. Kara does think this, so she will explain to us why English is so awesome to her. Um, She will explain to us why Shakespeare is so awesome to her and what it is like trying to get kids interested in something like Shakespeare, and uh, she'll explain what it's like in general trying to captivate a high school audience and keep things interesting for kids like that. She will also explain to us what it's like being involved in high school age kids' lives. Like I can't imagine what that's like having the ever-present and drama of, of high school kids around you all the time. And then later on in this interview, uh, she will talk to us about another wonderful thing that she does, which is volunteering her time to teach girls in Afghanistan over the internet. So um, if any of you have any interest in volunteering time to help te- teach and educate people abroad who could uh, use it, and who are very dedicated to their studies and wanting to learn more. Um, Kara will give us advice for that and this wonderful work that she is doing abroad. So without further ado, here is high school English teacher. Kara, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much. So great to be here. Yeah, yeah. So why don't we start out with you telling us all what made you want to become an English teacher in the first place? Like, I feel like English is... it. It being one of those just like core classes that you have since you're a little kid, it's it's like math and English, right? Or kind of like the yeah. t- I mean, obviously science, but I feel like those science changes a lot and gets more specific. But there's just like yep. you're always taking math and English. So I feel like because of that, math and English are both kind of like very unromantic to most <laughs> to most people and most children. <laughs> so like, yeah. it, did you always were you always really interested in English or when you were a kid, was it not very cool to you? And as you got older, it became cool. How did it all go? Well, I grew up in a house that was full of books. My mother is a librarian. And so I think maybe even behaviorally or genetically, I've inherited a bibliophile gene. And so I've always been reading. I've always been a reader. I can remember very clearly the first time in grade school that I read a book cover to cover in one sitting. It was the first of the Laurels Ingalls Wilder series. And I read it on our back porch. And I remember just kind of coming up for air at the end of the book and being like, oh, that, you know, that was satisfying. Um, so I think my love of literature and my love of books has been longstanding. But as far as being a teacher and wanting to be an English teacher, I decided that I wanted to be a teacher in the third grade. Whoa. My third grade teacher was phenomenal. She was amazing. She was a young teacher at the time. 
she actually got married that year and invited us all to her wedding. And I remember thinking in class, like looking up at her and, and seeing what she did with us and what she did for us. And I remember thinking like, oh, I want to do that. I want to be her. Um, and so I, I remember very clearly going home to my mom and she was standing at the kitchen sink and I said, I want to be a teacher. And my mom was like, well, okay, you know, you can do whatever you want. And that changed a little bit as I went through high school. I was convinced I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon for a year, and then I was going to be an opera singer, and then I was going to be a writer. But by the time I got to college, it was pretty clear that I was going to be doing something in academics. And so it was kind of settled at that point, you know, to be an English teacher, to be a teacher, it was a perfect combination. So I feel like that a lot of people that would want to become an English teacher would be huge readers and they would yeah. just love to read and they would love literature and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. My a lot of my memories from English class in grade school, junior high, high school, all of it is not really related to reading. It's you know, yeah. it's like vocabulary and uh like grammar and like all these other things that don't really have a lot to do with reading. Like those are the memories that stick out to me probably because I liked it less. Uh yeah. is is there like to to what extent? Well, for, all right. For, first of all, why don't you tell us like what grades you teach and what or what grade you teach, um, and kind of like what the curriculum is like, and is there kind of a difference between what you want to teach and what you're really interested in and what you have to teach these kids? Sure. So right now I teach tenth grade English, which is pretty standard across the board. It's usually world literature. In the past, I've taught anywhere from seventh grade to twelfth grade, so I've really run the gamut from middle school to high school. I've been really, really fortunate in that I've always taught in private schools. And so in private schools, we're not subject to the same laws and regulations that teachers in private schools are. And so I've had a lot of opportunity because of where I've taught and because of my experience that I've really been able to teach whatever I want. And so to be able to look at a group of kids and start with a book and then change it if their interests change or change something year to year because kids responded well or they gave good feedback or negative feedback, that's been really, really productive for me as a teacher and thinking about how to teach kids and how mm. to do it productively. That's so cool. I feel like that also makes it that you're much more able to uh, let's say somehow even have your English intertwine with current events or like things Absolutely. that are happening in the world or something, you can rope that into English in some way because you're not beholden to, oh, like we have to read, uh, the Odyssey right now. So, you yeah. know, we, that's, that's it. Or even aligning with their history curricula to make sure that they're making cross-curricular connections based on what they're doing in history and music and art. It's always been super, super important to me to have kids realize that the literature that they read wasn't created in a vacuum. And so if you look at critical theory, as far as English literature, literature is concerned, um, I ascribe to the theory of new historicism, um, which indicates that literature needs to be studied in context. So my kids are always getting history from me. I gave them a whole rundown on early modern masculinity the other day, just because it was in context of what we were learning about Shakespeare. So they're always getting those contexts, and it's really helpful to be able to kind of bob and weave depending on what on what catches on with the kids. I could only imagine that's so cool. So if the kids are yeah. learning about like ancient Rome or something, you might give them a writer from that time so that it's like, see, like this is kind of what their literature was like at that time. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's so cool. So then, yeah. all right. So then let's talk about the other 
piece that I that I do not finally remember, um, yeah. such as just like vocabulary, grammar, stuff like that. I would have to imagine that even though you are given freedom to be able to teach whatever you want, you still have, I imagine you feel that you have to do that, right? You can't just like skip those things. Well, yes, of course, because ultimately I'm, I'm creating students that are clear and focused writers that can communicate well. And to be able to communicate well, you of course need to be able to use the language well. So in that way, I'm a language teacher, even though for most of my students, it's their first language. So the theories on how to teach that type of thing, grammar and vocabulary and constructs, has, I think, changed since the time that I was in school. I remember having a grammar workbook and working through a grammar workbook. Yeah, exactly. And, of course, while I'm sure that there are schools that still do that, we don't do that anymore. I've never done that in my career as a teacher. I teach grammar in context. So I'll read a batch of papers. I'll read a bunch of essays and notice a mistake that the kids are making and then bring that into the class the next day and say, okay, you guys wrote X and I'm seeing you make this mistake. So then let's review this skill. And so we go over little grammar bites, um, maybe one or two topics a week at most um, and then vocabulary is either pulled from their reading or comes from, we do have a vocab workbook just because it's helpful um, to make sure that they're learning how to use the vocabulary. I'm not looking for them to be able to give me definitions to be able to kind of, kind of rote, repeat um, this information. I want to make sure that they're able to use it. So they're using it in quizzes that ask them to manufacture sentences or use it in response to the reading that they're doing. Mm. And so some of those theories, as far as education is concerned, have really changed. So I like to think that it's more valuable to the kids. They don't gripe about it the way I'm sure I did when I was a student, maybe. Yeah, um, for sure. So I like to think that it's more productive in that regard. Yeah, you're just making me think about how much technology has has changed things as well like i yeah. I, have, I have a kindle which i love and one of the reasons that I, that I haven't even really thought about this being one of the reasons that i enjoy my kindle but i really like that when an author uses some really interesting word that i have never really heard before i can just highlight it on my kindle even if i don't have an internet connection and it'll immediately tell me what the definition of that word is you know absolutely and yeah. i freaking love that because you get it in this really interesting and deep context in the book and now you also get the definition and it's just great and how nice that kids can have tools like that i'm sure that you know any sort of ipad or anything would have that but um yeah like what a better way to learn something than like you said just being given like a vocabulary workbook where you're just trying to like memorize 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 these words you know exactly and your hope is then that that student would be able to use the word and recognize the word the next time they saw it and my biggest indicator for success in any of my students in the english classroom is whether or not they're reading so they could be reading three to five pages of some fun fantasy novel before bed maybe on a kindle or a book from the library um but that is my biggest recommendation to kids and families is read just read something read anything and I can tell you by the second week of school who the readers are and who's going to be successful in class because they're reading. So what percentage would you say of your class are readers? Because like I, oh, like I hated reading until I got probably about until I graduated from college, I would say. Yeah. Like right, basically right when I stopped having to, which is, I guess is such a like psychological thing but like right when i stopped being asked to read and right when i stopped having to read is when i i actually started reading you know um yeah. out of your students like what percentage would you say actually will voluntarily read 
So my classes right now are approximately 18 students each, and I'd say that in each group of 18 students, there are maybe two students who read. Wow, that's crazy, especially given the fact that it's a private school with really small class sizes like that and everything. Exactly. There are two students who read. Um, Those that do read generally read pretty voraciously, and it's really fun as a teacher because they'll make recommendations to me, and I can make recommendations to them. I actually have two books on my nightstand right now that I borrowed from my kids because they weren't available in the library. So that's really fun to be able to read and talk to them about what they're reading. But you would be so surprised at the number of kids who read is really, really not very high at all. And I think partly it's because there's so much other information coming in. They are distracted by computers. They're doing a lot of homework for other subjects. They are engaged in extracurricular activities and their phones are constantly buzzing at them, which is a big problem. Um, But in some cases with students, um, I always like to remind myself and I remind them too that developmentally, Oftentimes, the brain doesn't learn how to read truly until high school or college. And so for a kid that doesn't like reading, it often means that they're reading the words on the page and not seeing the picture happen in their head the way that you would want them to and the way that makes reading maybe enjoyable. And playing that movie reel in your head of what you're reading is something that your brain doesn't do naturally. Mm -hmm. So your brain has to learn how to do that over time. And so for kids... Um, for whom reading is really easy, their brain has done that. And I know as a little kid, my brain did that immediately, and I just read all the time. But for kids that don't like reading, oftentimes my first question is, are you looking at words on a page or are you looking at a movie in your head? And they'll always say words on a page. And I remind them that it's not their fault. You know, our brains are all different. And their brain just hasn't learned how to, done that, how to do that yet. So yeah, for sure. And, and sometimes that- it takes time. Yeah. And to your point about phones and everything else that kids have nowadays and not just nowadays, because I mean, now thinking about it, that was a big problem for me growing up and why I didn't really like reading is like everything else that is competing for your time and attention is the the gratification is so much more immediate. You know, yeah. like it it I mean, right now it takes me, I don't know, like two to three weeks to read a good book, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. And so it, it versus like, I just watched it, the entirety of Stranger Things 2 in one yeah. day, you know, yeah. <laughs> like from and start ha- to finish. so have all of my students. They all came in this morning. It's a Monday morning. And they were like, oh my goodness, have you watched this? Have you watched this? And I was like, well, I had a book to finish this weekend. So I didn't. Um, and I don't even have a TV. So I might watch it on my computer one episode at a time. Yeah. But they are, that's how they're spending their time. And there's nothing wrong with that if that's how they like to relax. But it does mean that they aren't reading, which then, of course, in my mind as a teacher makes me worry that, okay, if you're not reading now, will you be a reader in the future? Will you go to college and be successful? And am I creating curious people ultimately? You know, I have to teach them this, that, and the other thing, but I would love it if they all just ended up being curious adults. Yeah, you have to somehow get them interested in like the the long game and like the long the long payoff of a book versus exactly. just really short term rewards of other things. I wonder what the reading rate was back in like uh, ancient Roman days and stuff like that. Like when you know no TV, like there's like what else are you going to do for God's sake? Like I would have to imagine that reading a book was by far the most entertaining thing that you could really be doing. You know, I mean, obviously if you're a kid, you can also go outside and like just play with your friends or something in the street. But yeah, uh, yeah like that's, 
it had to have just been fascinating to read the stories that people wrote down, not given any other option whatsoever versus nowadays the competition is fierce. And you have to take into account, too, that through the turn of the 20th century, most people couldn't read. So if you were reading something in ancient Rome, you, you know, were likely a scholar. Your life wasn't. Yeah, true that, right? You weren't relying on, you know, your survival skills day to day. But now that we don't have to work so hard at surviving and we have all this extra time in the last, you know, 40, 60, 80 years, we've transitioned to we transitioned from reading to Instagram. So, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. So given everything that we just said, uh, yeah. what sorts of ways do you try to liven things up for your kids? I would imagine that you're always trying to think of different ways to increase that number of two readers to like three readers or to just get people yeah. a little bit more excited about what's going on. What are some things that you've tried? Like, what do you find works well? One of the most important things for me as a teacher is to model good behavior for my students. And so I tell the kids about what I'm reading. They see me reading they don't see me on my phone. My phone stays in a drawer. Um, if I have a spare few minutes when I'm not grading papers or doing lessons, they see me sitting and reading. They see me in the library. They see me taking out books. And so that behavior is clearly modeled to them. And I talk about it all the time. I am not shy with my students about who I am as a person at all. And so that's always step one for me. And the second thing that I do really intentionally is I build in curiosity into my curriculum and so when kids read, say, for example, they did their summer reading books and they had a book that they were required to read and a choice book out of a series of six, and they did a curiosity project in response to their choice book and they got to discover something about the time period or the architecture or the art or the food. And so I build in curiosity, I build in research, and I build in opportunities to read and to choose because students are more likely to do the reading if you say, okay, in the next two weeks, I want you to choose a book and read it, and you can read whatever you want. Kids respond so much better to that than they do to, okay, we're going to read this thing that you don't want to read, but I'm making you read it for a grade. So I try to strike that balance with them as well. Yeah, for sure. Is there an archetype of kid that is more likely? So first of all, what is like the archetype of kid that you see for the, the two kids sort of per class that is a like voracious reader? And then uh, is there an archetype for the other kids that are kind of in the middle that like do take a lot better to you saying, Hey, like choose your own book, whatever, versus the kids that are just like kind of checked out and they just don't really care. They're just, you know, trying to get their grade and move on. I think that balance is really, it's difficult to see and to understand because kids are influenced so much from their friends, their schools, their communities, and their families. I would say that in my experience, the kids that read are the kids that have parents that read. And so there are books in the house and they are exposed to books. And if you see a parent sitting and reading on the couch and that's how they like to relax in the evenings, then that's what you are going to do. Mm -hmm. um, the kids that are in the middle are kids that are maybe invested in other things or distracted or find reading difficult. A lot of times teenagers won't say this directly, but a lot of times the things that the kids avoid are the things that they struggle with. And so if a kid isn't a reader or a kid is uncomfortable or doesn't do well in my classroom, it's because they're confused or their reading level isn't up to par, or maybe they have a latent learning difference so that they can't do the work and they're frustrated by the work and so they avoid the work. And so it's important to connect with the kids and ask them those questions to see what's really going on. But kids are really lovely in that they're super duper honest. And sometimes I ask them, I'm like, you should read books. This is great. You should do this. And they're like, 
yeah, but I also could just go home and watch Netflix. And then Netflix doesn't ask anything of me and the book will ask me to engage. And so I don't want to engage. Yeah. And I say, I say, well, okay, you can make that decision for yourself, but these are the ultimate ramifications. What do you, what do you find those ramifications to be? Or like, what is that in your head? Language skills, curiosity, becoming an interesting adult, um, that bit about being a lifelong learner, their success in my class and in all of their classes, uh, be it history or science or English, math, etc. Um, the ramifications are far reaching in that if I think about the people who I am most friendly with as in my adult life and the people that I admire and find impressive and interesting, they're all readers and they always have been. And so I think that it's hard to convince a 15 year old that their, cho- their choice, whether or not to read will impact who they are when they're 30. Um, but it, it is, it is real. So yeah, that's very interesting. Do you get to, uh, how good is your relationship with the other teachers at your school? Like, do you, do you talk to them a decent amount? So the job that I'm in right now is a day school and it's a new position for me. So I am not as close with my colleagues right now because, you know, we've known each other for two months, but in my past experience, I worked at a boarding school for a long time. So all of us actually lived and worked together on campus. Yeah. So that was a really wonderful experience and a really wonderful community to be a part of. And so in that case, we all read together. We all shared books and we all talked about the kids and about what they were doing and what they needed. And so in those conversations, um, we really were taking care of the children as their parents, um, even legally. I mean, we were technically their parents. Yeah. Um, so that, that position and those conversations were different than the ones I'm having now. But I think the commonality between the two is that in both cases, We've been super, we are always super, super careful to educate the whole child and to care for the whole child. So if they're struggling in science, but they're doing really well for me, we try to figure out what the disconnect is. If they're doing really well for me, they are probably also doing really well in everything else. Um, that's a, so, so that's what was my exact guess. Like I was going to say yeah. that, like the, that those two kids that read, I would imagine that they're also just like, you know, they're superstars. Yeah, they exactly. They everything. do great in everything. Yeah. But I would imagine yeah. that there is a decent amount of kids where like you're like, ah, oh, damn, they're not readers and they're probably uh, not very curious. But then you talk to the science teacher and they're just like curious as hell when it comes to like dissecting animals and, you know, stuff like that. Exactly. And I think it's important to remind the kids, too, that ultimately what we hope for them is for them to find a passion, to find something to pursue and to study that makes them happy and will make them happy for however many years that they do it. And so if I have a kid in my classroom that loves science, I can then steer them more toward reading that type of literature for fun mm. because it's out there, be it fiction or nonfiction. But I also spend a lot of time sharing with kids, you know, my experience as a student. I did super well in English and did super well in pretty much everything until I got to AP Calculus. And I got to AP Calculus and I hit a wall. And so that's where my experience with math stopped. But that was okay because I was never going to be a mathematician. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, what on the English side do you find to be the most difficult concepts for your kids to learn? Like, is it vocabulary? Is it literature? Like, what are we looking at? I think it's literature. I think it's literature that's complicated because a lot of kids walk into the classroom and they think that literature with a capital L isn't meant for them. On some score. Definitely. So 
right now we're doing poetry and the kids sometimes walk into the room, they go, I don't like poetry. And so I ask them, I say, what do you think poetry is? Why don't you like poetry? And they'll say, oh, it seems lazy. It's a cop out. It's this, it's that. And we break that down and they start writing poetry. And I do a whole lesson on jazz and um, the Harlem Renaissance and music to get them engaged. And so then by the time they start writing poetry in response to their own identity, we've doing a lot of identity work as well as the posts that they're reading, something lights up in them and they go, oh, you know, this is for me. This is accessible. I can read a poem for fun. Um, I can understand what's what I'm seeing in magazines or in the newspaper. And so that's kind of a hurdle that we always have to get over. So that's something that the kids come in and automatically like they have their hands up. They're like, this is not for me. Whereas grammar concepts and skills and vocabulary that they understand as school with a capital S. And so those concepts are easier to teach them because they're skills and they understand that that's what school is. (laughs) They're like resigned to the fact that they have to do it. Yeah, exactly. But when you bring them into a classroom and put Shakespeare in front of them or put poetry in front of them, and they go, oh, this isn't for me. This is for another type of person, or this was for another time. And you try to teach them about what it's like to be a human and how this literature discusses humanity. And whether it's Shakespeare's humanity 400 years ago or our humanity today, it's still applicable. That's a much harder bridge to cross with teenagers than grammar and vocab is. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk about Shakespeare for a second, because I know that that is one of your passions. And I would imagine that's a difficult passion to have being an English teacher because I, and again, I don't want to like assume that all kids are the same as me because I definitely know that they aren't. But I remember Shakespeare being like by far my least favorite thing that I ever had to learn because it was just like, what the hell is this guy talking about? Why can't like, why can't we read? Can this be translated more so I can understand it better? And then they're trying to get me to understand it. And it's like, but I don't really care that much. And I'm never going to speak like this. And like, can't we like, I just don't understand why we're doing this. You know, like this just isn't really captivating to me when let's say there's like a book like Harry Potter out there or something that's like, uh, you know, much more like action packed, you know, and like adrenaline filled. For uh, for a kid to read, or for like a high school student to read, and uh, yeah, Shakespeare seems so much less exciting to me, and and just the effort that I had to put in to even understand what was happening. I have to imagine I'm not like the only high school age kid that feels like that. You know, like that I when I felt like that back then. Do you find that it's a little bit difficult to get kids to like Shakespeare? And what is that like to have something that you enjoy so much and that is like such a passion of yours? to have kids like aren't really liking it that much well uh, to be quite honest with you none of the kids like it frankly (laughs) i walk into a classroom when we start shakespeare whether it's plays or poetry and each grade level really usually reads a different play and so they've seen it before and they know they'll see it again and by the time they've gotten to me usually they've seen it and they've decided that they don't like it or they've seen it and for whatever reason it hasn't been taught well And so they're like, well, this is a thing that I read and my eyes tracked the page, but I have no idea what he's saying. And so I start always with a story with the kids. um, And I talk to them about how I memorized Hamlet when I was in the third grade. And I would walk home from elementary school down the hill and recite Hamlet to myself. And so this gives them kind of a mental picture of a, you know, third grade me. So what's that, 10 years old, um, bopping down the street, reciting Hamlet. And so I recite that to them in the classroom because I still remember it. And they look at me like, 
you are crazy. (laughs) For sure. You are the biggest (laughs) nerd I've ever seen in my entire life. I did not know that. (laughs) Exactly. And they will say that. They will be like, you are like a super nerd. And I'll be like, okay, guys, first of all, this is not surprising to you. And secondly, (laughs) and secondly, this is okay. Like, this is a good thing. And so I try my hardest every year to make sure that I make Shakespeare interesting and that I make him accessible and that I make him exciting. I mean, if you take Macbeth as an example, a guy gets cut in half within the first couple of pages. Like what teenager is not going to be down for that? Yeah, So once you tell them or show them how to dissect the language, and we talk about medieval English and old English, and I play them examples of things like Beowulf and Chaucer, so that they understand that Shakespeare's English, Shakespeare's modern English really is our English. It's our language. Yeah. Even though in some cases it was pronounced a little bit differently, they start to see that their barriers are far fewer than they thought they were. And so once you get them to that point, and once you have them live in the language and we have them get up and act it and we take them to plays and they see it on the stage and they understand that it's conversational and we talk about iambic pentameter and verse and meter and rhyme and all these things they start to put it in their bodies and put it in their mouths and then they really do understand it. So they usually leave me um, appreciating it more and enjoying it more. Though I will say that I have not yet had a student who I think will go on to study Shakespeare, which breaks my heart, (laughs) but uh, never say never. It's just so hard. Like you saying all that just makes me think if an adult, if you're a kid, and an adult yeah. is trying to explain to you why something is cool, it's instantly not cool. Like, you're having yeah. to explain it to me. Like, you're trying to convince me that it's cool. Like, then it's not cool. I, as the kid, should be explaining to you why something is cool. You know, like, sure. no adult is going to explain to me. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, but so- you know what? I am so open with my kids and upfront with them about who I am. I think that one of the things that I didn't see when I was a high school age student was I knew my teachers and in some cases they lived in my communities, but they were separate from me. They were far away. They were older. They were not accessible. I didn't know them as people. And so I really make it very, I make a good effort to make sure that my kids know me as a person and that they know what I like and what I don't like. And so I am not shy at all about getting up in the cl- in front of the classroom and talking about how much I love Shakespeare and how important it is and all of these things. I wax poetic about it for just days and days and days. And so that's a way to get buy-in with the kids as well because they see me totally nerded out on this thing that they know I know a lot about. And then they buy in a little bit more because they see that there is, you know, infinite possibilities behind it. Do you, at what point in the year do you do this? I imagine you would wait a ways, like, so these people already see you as like a cool person that they can trust. And then you drop the Shakespeare bomb on them. It's not just like at the very beginning (laughs) where they don't really know you well. Yes, it's definitely, it's always in the winter. I usually start Shakespeare in December or January. Yeah. After they trust you a little bit, they don't think that you're like the worst person in the world. After they trust me, after they've settled a little bit, you know, September and October is a little bit of a frenzy in teenage world. Um, So once they've settled and once they're committed to taking risks with me in the classroom, then that's something that we start in the winter. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, So I have interviewed other teachers on this podcast before, but I've never interviewed a high school teacher before. And I've never even really spoken to a high school teacher, I don't think, since I graduated high school. 
I would love to know just like what the heck it is like to teach at the high school level and like how involved you end up getting in your students' lives, like voluntarily, involuntarily, like you just find out that so-and-so just broke up with so-and-so and and it's like, I I don't even want to know that information, but now I'm part of it, you know? Uh, What is it like? I think in a lot of ways we are like parents in that kids walk around and they talk to each other and they, they think that we can't hear them and they think that we don't know things. But I usually know pretty much everything. And uh, so a kid comes into my classroom and they need help with something or they're having feelings or they've come to me for help with, you know, something not academic. And they'll start to lay out the story and they'll be like, oh, I know. And they'll be like, well, how do you know? I'll be like, well, you talk about it in class and I'm five feet from you. So I can obviously hear you. Um, And the other thing is, is that kids, whether they like it or not, all of their feelings play over their faces. And so all it takes is to look at a kid to know what they're feeling, to know whether or not they're having a good day or a bad day, or Mm. they're having a fight with their best friend, or they're upset, or they're tired, which most of them are. Um, So they are, they're just so interesting, (laughs) frankly, um, because it's always something different. Every day it is something different. Is it almost bizarre how, you mentioned the thing about being in a fight with your best friend and stuff, is it almost bizarre how, like, dramatic everything can play out like are are you just like you guys like it's not that big of a deal like i don't know why you're making this so much harder than it is i try to offer them perspective um from my point of view because of course i'm beyond it well beyond it at this point i think that it's tough as a teenager to accept that perspective because you don't see it or you don't want to see it how big things are really just very little things so i think that sitting with them and making them feel validated and important like their feelings are real Because while they may be feeling very strong feelings about something that's in the grand scheme of things, not super important, the feeling and the reaction is real. So I always try to validate their feelings and talk to them about options and choices and break it out with them and then offer perspective to say like, hey, you're 15, you thought that this person was the love of your life, but frankly... (laughs) You don't know what that is yet, and you're not going to know what that is 10 years from now even. Um, So giving them that perspective is helpful because they realize that um, the world is not going to end, you know, that that everything gets better and the world keeps on turning. So reminding them of that is really important. What are the experiences like on the other side of things? So like I'm just an old, boring adult now. I am also (laughs) a married man. You know, it's like there's, there's not a lot of like, exciting things that I, and there's pl- I shouldn't say that I'm blessed like there's a lot of exciting things that happen in my life like I go sure. on cool vacations with my wife and like all this stuff you get to do this cool podcast I do this awesome podcast I meet all these yeah. awesome people um but with to your point about like how seriously a negative thing can be taken it's just mm-hmm. that way with positive things too and I could only yeah. imagine like what it's like when you see these like uh, a couple of kids who you know like probably have a crush on each other or something and then one day <laughs> all of a sudden like you said about like emotions just being written all over them it's like well something happened here they yeah. finally got together like great for them and it's like you're watching like a uh, like of sitcom like a romance sitcom thing you know and it's like oh how yeah. cool like this actually happened is it really cool to get uh I guess like a burst of like life and vitality and positive emotions that way that you just don't experience after a certain point in your life as you get older. Well, you know, I experience it every day because I'm getting it from the kids. Right. Um, my emotional journey from 8 a.m. to, you know, 4 p.m. is is up and down and over and under because of the kids and what they're feeling. 
Um, but I think it's, it's the same as if they're experiencing something on the other end of things that, you know, you offer perspective. Yes, you guys are going to the prom together and this is so great, but like a couple years from now, you're not going to know that person's name anymore. And, um, <laughs> unless you're in like the one or 2% of people that get married to their high school sweetheart, I don't know what that statistic is, but, um, this person, you will laugh about them probably at some point in the next 10 years. Um, so this might be the most romantic thing that's ever happened to you, but, um, I hope it isn't is, is sometimes what I, what I end up coming down to on the kids is I hope this isn't the best thing that, ha- that will ever happen to you because then life would be a big old disappointment. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, is no definitely punches. true. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. That's good. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's move on to another amazing thing that you do, which is mm-hmm. you volunteer your time teaching at an all girls school in Afghanistan over I Skype, do. like we are right now. So, yeah. uh, talk to us about that and how exactly you got set up with this opportunity and what you do. So I was teaching in a school that was very open-minded and progressive and we celebrated international day of the girl every week, every year. And one year we had a filming for both the school and our wider community of a documentary called Girl Rising, which is really phenomenal. And after the documentary, we had a talk back with a group of girls from Afghanistan who had come to the United States to study, be it college or secondary school, boarding school in this case. And they talked about their experiences. They talked about the differences between studying in Afghanistan and being here, the struggles that they faced at home the struggles that their family face as a result. And I realized in that moment that I have gone to school consistently since I was in pre-K. I don't, I think this might be the first calendar year ever that I have not been in some kind of matriculated program. And so I can go to school until I'm blue in the face and these girls can't. These girls struggle to learn how to read they struggle to learn science and math and all these things that they're very excited about. And so I felt... And such a difference, right? Like what you just said, they're very excited about. Like our students here are not excited about it at all. They actually are like want to very badly do this and they, you know, are not always given the opportunity. It's so different. I have American students that work very hard and I will never question their value and commitment. But the kids that sit in my classroom in America are kids for whom education is standard, for whom going to college is expected and they know that they will do it and it's not questioned. Whereas my girls in Afghanistan are so hungry for learning and so hungry for knowledge that they will work 15, 20, 100 times harder than any other student I've ever taught just because they want it so bad. And we're talking about girls who have never been to a library they don't have access to what I would consider, you know, one of the simplest thing, which, things, which is books. And so I sometimes say that to my students in America. I say, you don't realize what a gift you've been given. And so I feel responsible for educating a population that won't otherwise be educated. Yeah, for sure. What, uh, what are the logistics of this like? So like how long are the classes? What does it do schedule wise? Obviously there's like a huge time difference. Uh, so how, how does it work out? So the girls commitment, um, includes of course, getting up very early if they need to. And so because of my school schedule, I'm not able to teach them during the day because I'm at work. And so I usually have class or have my tutoring sessions with the girls in the evenings. 
So it's, you know, 9.30 or 10.30 my time, and it's early for them, 6.30 or 7.30 their time, usually before their school day starts. And so we do it that way. I know that there are other tutors in the program who are maybe retired or, or work from home, and so they're able to tutor during the day. So that schedule really kind of depends on the students and the teacher and that and that situation. Mm, cool. Really, really cool. Um, yeah. What are some of the differences in what you teach these girls compared to it, like what you would be teaching people of the same age in America? And then uh, and also how you teach them? Like, does that change? Well, I think that my teaching style, of course, probably partly because it's via video. Um, is simplified. I don't have access to the same kinds of things that I would in the classroom, and I can't move around the classroom that I like I would in in school. And so, a big part of each of my lessons is that we actually just start the lesson by talking, and it's important for them to hear a native English speaker, to hear the language, to use the language. And I start with, okay, tell me about your day. Tell me about what movie you saw this week. Tell me about what your friends are doing. Um, in some cases, the girls have just learned how to ride a bike or just discovered a skateboard because someone brought one to school. And so they have things to say and they're excited to say it. And that challenges their language skills. And then we usually get into a book that we're reading together. We take apart the vocabulary. We talk about vernacular because oftentimes they're more exposed to British English than they are to American English. And so we talk about those differences. Mm. But we also talk about things that they encounter and things they have questions about. I did a couple of days worth of lessons a little while back on how American plurals are so confusing because <laughs> moose, moose is not meese, yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, but, but ducks are ducks and deer are deer. And so we really, it ends in kind of a collective head shake of me being like, I'm sorry, English is impossible. And they're like, well, well, <laughs> it's still, you know, it is impossible, but it's still, it's still valuable. Um, and so we take apart the language and have fun with it in that regard, because in certain cases, it still really is an ELL or an English language learner um, situation, depending on where they are in their language skills. Yeah, for sure. And like you said, the fact that there are differences between American English and British English, and th like, that's also such a like a weird thing that they have to, to deal with as well. Yeah. And in, in some cases, I've had students that have gone on to go to British boarding schools. And so they're learning a different educational system. And sometimes my English is different than the English that they end up getting in their classroom um, once they leave Afghanistan. So I want to make sure that they're prepared to speak with whatever type of English speaker they come across. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right, Kara, let's go ahead and start to wind this thing down. I would love to know sure. what your absolute favorite part of being an English teacher is. Gosh, my absolute favorite part of being an English teacher is probably the fact that I get to talk about books all day. I love reading. I love books. I love the study of literature. I've spent most of my life studying literature. And so I am living the dream. I get to stand in front of a group of people who have to listen to me and they have <laughs> to be there. And I get to wave my arms and dance around the room and talk about something that I love more than anything else in the world. Yeah, that is so great. I love that. Um, what advice would you give for people that would like to do sort of stuff like what you're doing with these girls with Afghanistan? Like normally I ask people for advice for how to like get their job. I would imagine mm -hmm to become an English teacher, it's like, you know, major in something related to English or teaching or whatever yeah. it is, apply, hopefully you'll get the job. But yeah. uh, in terms of the volunteering piece, 
how would you recommend people go about volunteering their time to help educate people abroad? I think that there are lots of different ways to volunteer. It can be abroad and it can be right here at home. In my experience as a graduate student, I volunteered at the Boys and Girls Club in my community and tutored kids in that way. I've worked with um, students who are underserved in different urban communities and educated them, as well as, of course, educating and working on being an advocate for girls overseas. I think that the main thing is to offer yourself, even if you're not a teacher, if you are an English speaker and you are willing, that is often all that is needed, a caring person and somebody who's willing to take a chance. I knew early on that I was going to be an educator and an advocate. And so offering help and offering anything that you can do from just talking to a student who's learning English to volunteering in your community, helping a second grader at the Boys and Girls Club with their math, um, all of those things count. And all of those things do ultimately change lives. Yeah, definitely. Man, that's so cool. It's so great what you're doing. And uh, hopefully more of us get out there and do that. It's just super great. I hope so. I um, hope so. Kara, this has been so interesting and awesome. I appreciate you so much for taking the time and coming on the show. My pleasure. Hey, everyone. It's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you did, I would appreciate it so much if you considered leaving a review for the show on iTunes. I swear it'll only take like two minutes. Um, just search for the show on iTunes. Click on it. Click on ratings and reviews. You can leave a quick review um, or just uh, keep listening to the show. I appreciate that as well. Or tell a friend about the show or something. And if you have any ideas for the show, if you have a particular job or hobby that you would like to hear interviewed on the show, if you yourself think that you do something interview worthy and you would like to tell the world about what this job or hobby is that you have, head on over to halfhourintern.com. There's a link right there at the top that says submit your ideas and you could submit your ideas for the show, be them uh, somebody else that you would like me to interview, a particular field that you would like to hear about, or even if it is you yourself that would like to come on the show. Thanks so much for listening, you guys.